The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning and welcome to Squawkbox. Here are your headlines. A frozen dividend for Disney. The media giant cancels its payout as it takes a $1.4 billion hit from the pandemic, but announces plans to reopen its theme park in Shanghai next week. BMW lowers its margin outlook, warning the negative impact on its key markets is lasting longer than anticipated, and the second quarter will be worse than the first. Oil prices break a five-day winning streak after WTI gains more than 20% and Brent crosses $30 a barrel while Chinese stocks return from the Labour holiday on a lacklustre note. President Trump says the coronavirus outbreak will continue to claim lives but has added lifting restrictions to restart the economy is a risk worth taking. One model that's very important is that if we did this a different way, We would have lost more, much more than two million people. And we did it the right way. We did everything right. But now it's time to go back to work. And the UK becomes the worst hit country in Europe, overtaking Italy with a death toll circa 30,000 now. This is the government grapples to set a timeline for the exit from the lockdown. So good morning. Let's uh, continue our focus on the earnings season here. Unicredit just through with some numbers. So let's have a quick look. Net loss in at uh, 2.71 billion euros. The uh, loss, uh, the previous loss was 1.53 billion. Uh, The uh, group says uh, first quarter revenue in at 4.77 billion as against the 4.48 billion uh, consensus provided by the company. So a little better on the revenue line, at least. Uh, First quarter net interest income in at uh, 2.5 billion uh, euros here. The market was looking for 2.47 billion on the company provided uh, forecast. And the net fee income in at 1.62 billion fees the 1.5 billion consensus provided by the company here. Quick look at uh, the credit agricole numbers the group giving us a revenue line of 5.14 billion as against the 4.9 billion uh, a year ago underlying gross operating income in at 1.58 billion the market uh, uh, saw 1.47 billion uh, for the previous period with a net income for the group on the first quarter per share of 652 uh, million uh, sorry net income group share 652 million as against the 796 million uh, previously a little drop in the um, CT1 ratio at the end of March uh, down uh, 0.7 uh, pips to 11.4% the uh, underlying EPS uh, 
uh, for the first quarter, uh, then in at 0 0.17 uh, euro cents as against uh, 0 0.23 euro cents previously. Uh, in terms of some lines from the business, continued uh, momentum in customer capture, seen as a positive, plus 86,000 business and individual customers. And at the eight, uh, uh, sorry, at the end of uh, April uh, 2020, uh, the group says it had completed 67% of its medium to long-term market funding program for the year here. So the uh, group then reporting strong sales in the first quarter in all business lines, uh, but ultimately that more positive development interrupted by the crisis in March, ultimately uh, an increase in the cost of risk as well uh, that the company is uh, taking on board at this stage. We'll, uh, we'll just continue to, to monitor how um, these bank shares fare as we come up to the open here. But um, as you would anticipate, um, for, for all of these banks, there is an impact on the first quarter profitability as they have had to lift their provisions. So we'll spend a bit more time, as I say, talking about the banks pre the open just to see what kind of pre-market calls we get, given that the early view on the out uh, on the open is that we will get a negative start to the trading session modestly modestly negative that's what the futures are implying at this stage but we will continue to check in let's refocus on disney shares fell in extended trading after the entertainment giant said it took a 1.4 billion dollar hit due to the virus pandemic and decided to freeze its dividend for the first half of the year the company's second quarter earnings fell 63% disappointing analysts, but quarterly revenue rose 21% to $18 billion, which was slightly better than the expectation. Its streaming service, Disney Plus, added almost 5 million new subscribers in less than a month, bringing the total to 54.5 million. Park closures alone slashed Disney's profits by $1 billion in the second quarter. But the new CEO, Bob Chapek, said the company is working on reopening its theme parks and is uh, set, trying to set a date to resume business in Shanghai Disneyland, which has been closed since January. We are seeing encouraging signs of a gradual return to some semblance of normalcy in China. We and our government partners, Shanghai Shandy Group, plan to open Shanghai Disneyland on May 11th. And some uh, interesting developments around this story that I was particularly entertained by the fact that obviously as they reopen this Shanghai operation, uh, they are going to drastically reduce the number of customers who will be allowed in. I think they said the capacity was 80,000 normally. Only 30% of that capacity will be allowed in on the reopening. There will be masks, social distancing and temperature scans from that May 11th reopening. So let's just give you that date. And what I found quite cute was that they are going to introduce face masks featuring Baby Yoda, Black Panther, Forky, and a whole lot more Disney uh, characters. So um, a nice way for Disney perhaps to begin the reopening here. But I wonder to what extent they can now use this Shanghai reopening as a template for how they begin to reopen other parks, Karen. 
they've got to keep the fun, don't they? And uh, themed masks may make some of a, a little bit of a difference, but you've got to think, how much money do families spend going to Disneyland parks every year? It's a very expensive trip. Do you want to do it when you're not getting the full experience, so to speak? Do you want to hold off? And if you have concerns, and if you look at some of the uh, ratings around whether people are concerned about venturing back out again, many are still concerned about catching coronavirus. So will they be necessarily heading to their, their nearest Disneyland for the experience? Perhaps not. And when you look at the capacity numbers, it just goes back to what we're talking about from restaurants to shopping centres. The numbers don't work, do they, when you have to reduce the capacity? Just 24,000 people, the level they'll be aiming for at that uh, Chinese theme park. So that's a problem for Disney. One caveat here, Bob Chapek does come from the parks division, so he does know the ins and outs of this particular area, which was the fast-growing segment for Disney before we had the crisis. It was firing on all cylinders, but a 58% drop in the operating income, clearly a hit. What jumps out to me around Disney is that everywhere you turn in the business, there is a problem, from theme parks to the networks where advertising revenue is falling, to the delay in movie releases, that's impacted the studios, but also then if you turn to the streaming service, this is one of the bright spots, yet of course it's in ramp-up phase. It was never designed to be profitable from the outset, and they've done particularly well on subscriber numbers, what we're at uh, more than 50 million, uh, the number at 54.5 million, which is stunning from 33.5 million in March, so clearly an add-on of eyeballs during this crisis. But still, that does mean there'll be a heavy ramp-up cost to try and roll out those services across international jurisdictions. The other point I make around the dividend too, that was cancelled and you can see why. I mean, clearly preserving capital, that's the priority for many companies at this point and it will save Disney effectively $1.6 billion in cash. However, also worth noting, it was very hard for the company to pay out a, a dividend anyway in this first half because it furloughed 100,000 workers. You can imagine how that would have gone down with the public if it had continued to pay out that uh, big dividend to shareholders, Steve. Uh, absolutely, Karen. What you've both honed in on is the problem that Alex Sherman, our staff tech reporter and media reporter in the US, has, has pointed on CNBC.com, and I thoroughly uh, recommend our viewers read it. And, and one of the key lines that jumped out of me from Alex Sherman was, uh, Disney has a conglomerate problem. Now, how many times have we talked about conglomerate problems with other companies and other sectors over the years? It was seen as a strength uh, for Disney as well. And I'll just add in a couple of other features. I mean, you've graphically illustrated the problems uh, with the Shanghai reopening as well. And I remember being in Disney Orlando myself one time, and one of the things I hated about it was the fact it was so packed. Great experience, apart from the number of people. So it's going to be a very different experience, as Karen and Jeff were pointing out. Uh, the other thing is valuation. And the shares, of course, underwhelmed by the numbers yesterday. But when we look a little bit deeper in the valuations of these companies, we see such an enormous disparity. Uh, and for hedge funds to turn around to me and say, oh, well, everything's correlated. Well, it's not, is it? Let's go through the numbers. Viacom trades less than four times trailing. Disney trades circa 20 times trailing. Netflix, which, of course, as Karen was saying, is a, a vicious competitor and doesn't have the same conglomerate problems uh, that Disney has, uh, trades at around about 85 times trailing. So, there are wide disparities from Viacom to Disney uh, to Netflix at the top of the pack in terms of these media plays as well. So a huge number of issues for Disney to think about. One, you've mentioned the parks. Two, cord cutting from the likes of ESPN division as well. And three, the movie releases. I mean, the strength of the Marvel uh, and Star Wars and Pixar and Disney franchise. I mean, I love all the movies. There you go. I'll put my hand up. I think they're fantastic. But the fact of the matter is, if they can't release them in cinemas and movie theatres, 
investors a lot more difficult to make it profitable direct to home. Jeff Caron. Yeah, all terrific points, of course, guys. And I just want to round it out by just talking about how important Disney is, of course, for other industries and not just those um, perhaps smaller businesses that feed into the theme parks with food supplies and the uh, merchandise and other items. And of course, the, uh, the staff that are on the cruise ships and the supplies into the cruise ships. What I thought was very interesting was both uh, United Airlines and Southwestern Airlines bosses had referenced Disney in their own calls with analysts as they talked about some of the challenges just getting the planes full again at this stage. And of course, that arresting number that we had overnight that the airlines are burning through $10 billion at this point as they struggle to keep operations running uh, and yet have practically empty planes. And of course, if the theme parks are once again operating, then there'll be a lot more travelers flying into the United States for those experiences. But we'll come back to Disney a little bit later on in the program. Let's talk about the president. Donald Trump has announced the White House Coronavirus Task Force will wind down in coming weeks and focus on the economic recovery. More than 70,000 people in the US have died from COVID-19. A secondary team will be assembled for what the president has called phase two of the outbreak. President Trump made the announcement during a visit to a Honeywell factory in Arizona that is producing N95 face masks. The president chose not to wear one himself during the tour, despite safety signs in the facility, urging everyone to, quote, wear your mask at all times. Other White House officials also decided to forego certain protective gear while on the tour. Um, let's have a look at uh, how the markets have performed here. We'll just show you some of the boards. Um, this is where we are on the uh, implied open for US futures. They've actually got a little bit better here. So 51 is uh, what we're suggested starting at as we come out the gates with the Dow. Um, let's have a look at how we uh, finished the session then in the US markets. And that was how we wrapped up the trading day. And um, the suggestion <coughs> is that we might get a little more muted start to trade. But I just wanted to to point out um, there were a number of interesting uh, analyst lines uh, around these markets. Bank of America digging into the stock traders almanac and saying since 1928, the S&P has gained the most in the six-month period from June to November with a rally of 6.7% uh, on average in a presidential election year. So Bank of America saying they think that might be one reason not to sell in May and go away this year. Having said that, Benjamin Bowler over at S&P perhaps taking another line suggesting that markets already near tech valuations at some point and equities either imply a very short recession or that the Fed will step in and start buying. Well, one area perhaps of resilience that many in the market can agree on is the healthcare sector. So let's just show you some of these healthcare stocks, if we might here, and how we are seeing a little bit of improvement in sentiment around the healthcare sector day in, day out, as one, we begin to see a flattening on the curve for these new infections. But we also begin to see perhaps some more exciting news about the the progress of both testing and, of course, potentially some form of vaccination. Uh, for more on the uh, easing of the lockdown restrictions around the world, check out the 
Squawk Box podcast. Well, coming up on Squawk Box, a horrendous statistic for the United Kingdom. The UK now officially the worst hit nation in Europe, surpassing the totals previously set by Italy. But this, as the government insists, it is wrong to make direct comparisons just yet. We'll be back on Squawk Box after a short break. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Welcome back, everybody. We'll join uh, Chinese markets, join the fray today after two days away. Japan, of course, is still on holiday, but we have seen these markets pull themselves out of negative territory. Let's pick up with Emily, who can tell us a bit more about the trade and how investors appear to be reacting to the latest Chinese uh, U.S. trade data. Yeah, these are numbers that, that we're digging deeper into, uh, Jeff. Of course, uh, the latest numbers coming out from the United States. And we'll get another picture out of China tomorrow when it releases its latest uh, trade figures. Uh, resumption of trade for the Chinese markets and um, Shanghai managing to firm up after a session in the morning. It spent most of the time in negative territory. Uh, just some small gains coming through for the Shanghai Composite, uh, which is uh, currently sitting up about uh, barely even one point two thousand eight hundred sixty. We've got the Shenzhen Composite up six tenths of 1%. Hang Seng Index better on the day for about 1%. Now to the trade data, U.S. exports to China for the first quarter down 15% on year, suggesting that Beijing may not be able to make good on its promises in that phase one trade deal. Uh, $23 billion in goods to China versus $27 billion in the year ago period. Uh, also learning that U.S. imports from China were down more than 30% and overall trade between the two countries down 27.2%. Uh, so with that trade a deal, of China is meant to buy $194 billion worth of goods this year, and that is an increase of 82%. Uh, we did get some commentary coming out from Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin speaking to Fox Business Network. He says that I have every reason to expect that they honor this agreement, and if they don't, there would be very significant consequences in the relationship and in the global economy as to how people would do business with them. Also, of course, a President Trump... Uh, had a few words of his own saying that now they have to buy, he said, and if they don't buy, we'll terminate the deal. Very, very simple. So, so this is something that we're going to be continuing to watch and we'll get more clarity on the Chinese side as they release their monthly trade numbers coming out tomorrow. Uh, we'll also get a Taishan Services read. Uh, so that'll give us 
a better picture coming out tomorrow from China. Jeff, it's back to you. Emily, thank you so much. The UK and the US have vowed to quickly strike a trade deal that could help them bounce back from the fallout from COVID-19. This is the two sides formally started talks on a free trade agreement. Negotiations will be held virtually over coming weeks. The deal would mark the UK's first free trade tie-up since leaving the EU in January. The UK has overtaken Italy to record the highest coronavirus death toll in Europe. The UK reported almost 700 new deaths on Tuesday, while weekly figures by the National Statistics Office place the total death toll at over 32,000. Uh, Steve, let's, uh, let's just pick up on this. Um, uh, this is a, a grim number, of course, that we have to report at this point. But it will continue to throw the spotlight on the actions that the UK government has taken compared with the actions taken by other countries that have seen lower uh, life loss. Yeah, Jeff, look, I love arguing about numbers with you and Karen. It's one of the lifebloods of the show. But when I'm arguing with my production team before the start of the show uh, uh, about which number we use, because which is the more horrendous and which is the more accurate, it's, it's a horrible thing to have to do. But it's the fact of the times that that is the discussion that I had with our, our, our supervising producer this morning. Which number do we use? Do we use the 29,500 figure uh, that was used by Dominic Raab yesterday? Do we look at that 32,500 figure uh, that is the ONS number? Or do we look at the number which could be north of 42,000 looking at abnormal deaths compared with the number we had the same period last year. These are horrifying statistics that we need to pour over as well. Uh, but Dominic Raab has been talking about this. Let's listen in. There are different ways of counting uh, deaths, as we know we've had that debate in this country. Uh, we now publish data that includes all deaths in all settings, and not all countries do that. So I'm not sure that the international comparison works unless you're, uh, you're, you're, you reliably know that all countries are measuring in the same way. Um, and it also depends on how good, frankly, countries are in gathering their statistics. And our own Office of National Statistics is widely acknowledged to be a world leader. Uh, and one of the reasons we've embraced that is because we want the transparency because we are confident and we believe that it's only if we get the full transparency that we'll be in the best place to tackle this virus. So that's Dominic Raab, who's been the stand-in de facto Prime Minister before Boris Johnson got back to work at the start of last week. Let's see what Boris Johnson himself says today at Prime Minister's Question Time. Of course, you have this strange hybrid physical stroke uh, virtual system where some MPs will be in the chamber, others will be uh, coming in via streaming as well. But who will be there is Sir Keir Starmer, the new leader of the opposition, who will be pouring over these numbers with Boris Johnson. A lot of reports out there talking about the real death toll, why it is this high as well, and why the care homes were left, according to various reports, to pretty much care for themselves in some ways as well and not given priority, as indeed the hospitals were given priority. And uh, of course, a large amount of these extra deaths are coming from the elderly, from the vulnerable and for those who are generally in care homes as well. So that will be one key focus of Prime Minister's Question Time. The other will be the end of the lockdown, because tomorrow is the end of the second three-week period that needs reviewing uh, for the lockdown. Of course, that's going to be brushed aside. And we understand now that Boris Johnson will be making 
making a comprehensive roadmap speech on Sunday, giving himself as long as possible on the statistics to get away from what they believe was the peak in early to mid-April and to talk about the lockdown, encourage people to go out to work is one area, opening up public spaces uh, and perhaps a school's plan for as early as 1st of June uh, for some school children to get back in the United Kingdom. The five tests have to be adhered to. Let's go through those again. One, no second peak. Two, there has to be enough PPE for the hospitals. Three, the death rate falling. Four, the National Health Service has to be able to cope. And five, infection rates falling as well. All of those criteria, according to the government, have to be satisfied before restrictions are loosened. In the meantime, a quick word on what Rishi Sunak is doing. There are reports that early next week he's going to start curtailing uh, the conditions of the furlough scheme. 6.3 million people in the UK using it, but it's costing the UK a bundle of money at the moment and there's only a limited amount of time the UK can afford it. Back to you, Mr Cutmore. All right, Steve. Thanks very much. We'll come back to you a little bit later on. Uh, Let's just uh, give you a quick note. I mean, we talked about Trump uh, not wearing a mask, visiting the mask factory here in the UK. Bad behaviour by Boris Johnson as well, apparently. The UK government's scientific advisers told officials they should stop shaking hands on the same day the Prime Minister said he had done just that during a hospital visit. That according to a document released by a subgroup of the government's scientific advisory group for emergencies or SAGE around three weeks later, Johnson was confirmed as having coronavirus and was placed in intensive care. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.